Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... Thank you very much for tuning in to listen to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast, and I am excited about my topic. I have been looking for some an expert to join me to really dig into mergers and acquisitions because it's something that I think there's uh, there's not a lot. You usually, you usually have to have a lot of experience directly in the space in order to truly understand all of the options and the way the decisions are being made. And most startups really don't have any idea. When I coach startups or early stage companies, I always talk to them about, you know, figuring out what the end mark is, you know, it's your roadmap when you know, you got to have a destination and the destination is an exit. And that exit, a lot of times you you get the hype of the IPOs, but really, and I'm, I guess they probably give me the exact number, but probably less than it's probably single digit percentages of how many companies exit through an IPO versus how many companies get bought. Uh, And so it's really important to understand at what stage and what timing and things like that for you as an investor that's investing in private companies or you as an entrepreneur that's looking to create the wealth that you get beyond a payroll payroll, right? There's, there's the wealth that you create, the big wealth, the wealth that create that makes entrepreneurism the greatest source of wealth creation, angel investing into a successful entrepreneur being the second greatest source of wealth creation, that only happens. The wealth doesn't get created until you get an exit. Otherwise, it's a dividend or paycheck or something like that, and that's just money. And so uh, as I've been working on my, my next book, Scale, I have been um, really focusing in on and, and understanding and realizing that there's a lot of unknowns out there when it comes to merger and acquisitions. And so when my guest today, Ted Bender, agreed to be on this, I was enthusiastic because um, if you're from the Southeast, you probably know Croft and Bender. Um, I, uh, Ted was or, or somebody within his organization back when Croft and, when he was with Croft and Bender and they had their – um, funds that were going, they would always attend the Network of Business Angels and Investors. Those were the events that the angel investor group that I ran for a decade and in, or they would attend and they would attend and sometimes sponsor my big private equity fund events, the Southeast Private Equity Conference. And so uh, I, I know that the years that, that Ted has spent in the M&A space um, and running and making investments out of the private equity fund that was then Crofton um, Bender's fund. I think it's over 40 investments or acquisitions that they made. You know, so if you're not familiar with um, Crofton Bender, that's the, they had three funds. But since that time, uh, Ted had created his own company. He's still active in that, and he'll probably describe that to us. In 2018, he started T.J. Bender and Company as an independent Atlanta-based investment bank that provides M&A, capital raising, and strategic advisory services to businesses, family offices, and private equity firms. So he works with all the different aspects of getting a company ready, identifying who should acquire it, working with people that are looking to acquire companies, 
looking, helping companies figure out how to merge their, uh, you know, their, their two companies, all of that. And he's going to share that with us today. So without further ado, welcome, Ted. Thank you so much for being on the Compassionate Capitalist podcast. Thank you, Karen. I'm delighted to be here. Great. So let's talk in, you know, there's somebody, there's a lot of catchphrases, if you will. And so, um, well, first, let me ask, is there anything I should add to your bio that you would want to share with our audience before we get started talking about mergers and acquisitions? No, that's, that's fine. We'll maybe touch on that as we go. Okay, sounds great. So um, if you would just sort of kind of put, give us a foundation of, of how these terms, when it comes to types of acquisitions, you got your horizontal, vertical, and there's consolidation, market expansion. Just give a, a sort of a, a broad sw- of, uh, sweep of what the, all that is so we can get everybody on the same page as we go down this topic. Yeah, I don't know that those terms mean a whole lot. Um, if a company is, is acquiring companies in its industry, then they would be considered probably a strategic acquirer and they might be considered to be uh, rolling up the industry or adding on acquisitions to uh, to grow and achieve economies of scale. You know, I guess those uh, those would probably generally be something that uh, would be vertical if they're in the same industry, if they're in a related industry that would allow them to go into different products that might be considered horizontal. Um, you know, I think generally we see uh, we see primarily two kinds, two or three kinds of, of transactions. We see, uh, and we mostly represent sellers, occasionally buyers, but mostly sellers. And the buyers are the sellers are usually looking at either raising a minor, you know growth capital by selling a minority interest in the company, or by selling a majority interest in the company. They would raise capital for the company, raise perhaps some liquidity for themselves and bring in a financial partner who would finance growth uh, operations going forward from there, possibly through, uh, through acquisitions. So, okay. You know, so I'm sorry. Uh, I just want to clarify something that you just before. I, so in that case, they're taking on a strategic partner, like a private equity fund or a, a family office, perhaps that, it continues to fuel their growth until there's a later exit of a full sell-off of the company? Or is that also the situation that you might see if they were doing a spin-out of a division? You would generally be raised, you would, you would form your company, it would be growing, you would, you would raise growth capital to, you know, you, so you're growing your company, you have a, a good product, a good management team, the company's making a good gross profit, but in the SGNA area, it's spending up all of that gross profit, creating revenues, and has an opportunity to grow even faster, but it doesn't have the capital. So that tends to be venture capital. The next okay. stage would be that you're up and you're operating and you're profitable and you're really growing, but maybe you, you need more capital to grow faster. You want to make an acquisition. Um, you want to take some money off the table. Then that's really growth equity. The next stage could be either that change of control for a raise, which would be a recapitalization. 
if you sell to someone in your industry, that tends to be the last stage. That's a you're acquired by a strategic acquiror. Okay. So if you're 100%. a healthcare company and you're acquired by a bigger healthcare company in your industry that perhaps does a lot of the same things you do, that's it. That's a kiss goodbye. You're you're where you're going to be forever. Everything up until that point is primarily bringing in investors who have only interest is is aligned with management to try to increase shareholder value for that final exit to a strategic acquirer or, or as you said earlier, an IPO in rare instances. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So in the case of the two, whether, uh, whether venture capital or private equity funds, maybe we should take a minute because I've covered this on other topics, but within the context of this, there's a difference. It's a fundamental difference between venture capital and private equity. And while explain sort of they operate in sort of different spheres they operate in different kind of industries and stages and one sort of in that early stage whereas one sort of is middle market or or kind of put that within context for us well venture risk venture stage investments and venture risk investments are those that tend to be where companies are not yet profitable or they're sort of at break even back to that example where they have customers they're selling a product they got a 80 percent gross profit and and they're doing really nicely but you know they got 15 employees and that's that cost a million dollars a year more than the amount of that gross profit so they're losing money that is a venture capital deal and a venture capital deal is one where there tends to be both execution risk and maybe technology risk or product risk so the whole thing is not really proven that there's a there's a double edge risk going in there right. and they tend to get you know lower valuations and and look for much higher returns growth equity would be perhaps that same company they have maybe 5 to 10 million of revenue or 10 to 20 million of revenue and they're doing really well and they've got an opportunity to substantially increase their business with some new customers uh hire a lot of more salespeople and just really roll this business out uh, at a much faster pace. But they need a financial partner to help share the risk and provide the capital. That's growth equity. Right. And so is there a situation where you would have angel investors on the sort of the same continuum, angel investors, venture capital, and then private equity providing the growth capital, or they, do they sort of take on two trajectories where one path is the venture capital path and one path, you know, say it's a consumer products company or something would be on after the angel round would be on the private equity side. It usually would, I mean, you know, it would usually go angel venture capital, private equity, strategic. Okay. That's the natural course. You could skip one of those. Uh, You could go venture capital to strategic. Yeah, or angel to strategic, but uh, that be the normal growth course. Right. Okay. So when it comes to like establishing the value of what the acquisition is, you know, I there's it's always very challenging when you have a particularly in the tech company where they their revenues haven't caught up to their opportunity yet. And so there's a lot more investment going on in either acquiring the marketplace, getting more customers, 
and they haven't yet, you know, gotten to the point where they're profitable. And so there's continued, there's this odd sort of, you know, valuation that's based off of potential future earnings or other examples in the marketplace of, of valuations and things like that, that's sort of intangible. And then there's this, the one that, you know, most often you hear, I guess, probably within strategic acquisitions or when you sell off the whole company, it's uh, based off of an EBITDA number that's your earnings before interest, taxes, and depreciation. So it's kind of like the net net of what the company's making, and it's some multiple on that. So what happens when it's sort of in between, when it's one of those growth stages? How do they figure out the value of a company to invest you know, for 30% of the company and they're a $10 million company, let's say. Yeah. So valuation is the, is the fundamental problem in the, uh, in the whole, uh, the whole business. How do you, how do you determine the value? So a 5 million revenue software company came to me last week and they have a, a software product that, that solves a specific problem that is a very significant problem in uh, compensating sales people and calculating what they what they uh, uh, should earn and all that sort of thing, and the company is break even and and growing rapidly. And so, what's that company worth? Well, you know, the answer to that is nobody knows. You can go <laughs> look at all the multiples you want, and you sure you can see the the big workday companies out there in the world that are selling for uh, you know fifteen times EBITDA, but well, we don't really have any EBITDA. Okay, well, there's four times revenue. Okay, well, if a company's not profitable and it's $5 million of revenue, are they worth four times revenue? Mm, probably not. So it's always a challenge, and every company is different. And, the, right. the, you know, the, the, and it just you can do the uh, analytical valuation. So if a company is, is established and has good EBITDA and good growth rates, and there are a lot of companies out there that you can look at that are comparable or as we say good peers then you can actually do a mathematical calculation based on other M&A transactions and the trading values of public companies and discount for size and lack of liquidity and you can you can do all the arithmetic and you can come up with a uh, evaluation so they're comparable sales they're public comps discounted cash flow and you can come up with you know, these three different numbers, and then you can massage them and weight them differently and kind of come up with what looks like a range of value. But if you've got a company that's growing rapidly as a bit of an esoteric product, uh, maybe an unproven, you know, there's a, there's a risk factor in there that's hard to uh, – there's only one way to do that, and that is to do the research, determine the generally institutional investment community that would be interested in that opportunity – and go out to a material number of those, probably 50, with professionally prepared information that describes the pluses and the minuses of the company clearly and accurately. Not a, you know, marketing piece, but a disclosure right. piece. Yeah. Go out to the right investors that understand the business. When you talk to them, you're not having to describe what, you know, the product is, you're, you're having, you know, they sort of understand what you're doing and what the company's doing and they, they can go to the core of it fairly quickly. If you're talking to 50 of those people and they're the best heads in the industry and most active investors in the industry in that sector, 
you get offers. When you talk to 50 of them and, and you spend the time on it and you get five or six offers, then that is what the house is worth. And that is really about the only way to figure it out. Um, and you don't leave any money on the table that way, and, and neither do they. You go through a marketing yeah. process and, and uh, you know, you find the And there's usually not one buyer or investor that's, you know, 50% higher than the others. They tend to cluster around some value that you may or may not have been able to estimate very well in the beginning, but by the time you go through that process and the business owner sees you go through that process, then he or she knows that this is the value. And they can say, well, I like that. I'll raise capital. like it, I won't raise capital. I'll raise less capital, or um, whatever they whatever they think the situation merits. But that's the best way to figure out value. Yeah, that, that, I think that's company. right, and it takes some of the emotion out of it because I'm sure you have seen. I've seen some of. The, I've seen a lot of this, and I'm certain as long as you've been doing this, you've seen even more of it at a probably in some cases a much more frustrating level when. A founder has, maybe they did a small angel round to start with, friends and family, but they grew it organically, and it's their retirement plan is selling this company. And they have this perception of value of the company, and, but it's usually based on how much they want to have as their, like, you know, send off to ride off into the horizon with, yet they've been taking, taking money out of it you know, all along. So the financials don't seem as strong as they might be because the way they've been, you know, doing their books for the tax man rather than the bank, so to speak. So going out and actually testing the waters like you're describing is probably a way, you know, in in an idea of what it's going to be, but they may not want to receive it till they hear it from the potential buyers. Have you, have you found that sort of, it helps with getting, cutting through the emotion of what the seller is, thinking it's worth? It does. You know, I'm, I'm in a service business, and so I have to have to give people some reasonable expectation of what I think a business is worth before they're probably going to hire me to go sell it or raise capital. But it's hard to get through the first 10 minutes of a meeting with someone without them asking, well, what do you think we're worth? Yeah. Well, you know, I just <laughs> – I mean, I I just met you, you know, but uh, well, you know, what do we think? What do you think we're worth? Um, so you know, it's always it's always the most uh, sensitive sensitive question, but I tend to deflect it to that look. You you can yeah. value your company because of the following reasons, or you cannot because of the following reasons. We do know these following things, and we do not know these other important things. Are the people that we should go to and and get their opinion and their feedback. Let's go test the market, see what people like and what people don't like. Let's come back and regroup, prepare a presentation, go out to a broader market, get feedback from a large number of investors or acquirers, and we will have we will have the answer. So what I can tell you, sir, is that I don't know the answer, but I know how to get the answer. Yeah, and you'll be so satisfied been- that it is the correct answer. Yeah. So when it um so when I t- talking about strategic acquirers, okay? When I um have advised angel groups on sort of they're getting started and sort of like what's one of the 
premises they should have in their evaluation of a company. And a lot of times I find that angel investor groups traditionally will invest, a lot of them will invest based on um, this perception of what can happen without actually going out to see where there might be a potential exit. You know, where, where's the destination? The same sort of thing as you would expect an entrepreneur to do. But a lot of times they don't necessarily do that because there's a lot of, often a lot of times, a lot of emotion that's wrapped up into angel investing into a company. And so how do you um, help a company find a strategic acquirer or, or is there sometimes a stepping stone that says, okay, you know, I'll go to the, I'll go to the Edgar reports, you know, the public companies and see the things that they've bought recently or, you know, what, how do you go about trying to figure out who might be ideal to strategically acquire this when it's, it's beyond, it's the, it's the exit, not just the growth stage. Well, there are information sources, databases that all investment banks subscribe to, and they have every transaction that happens in uh, pretty much in the country, in the world. You may or may not have the, the the value may not be announced, but you can see that you know so and so acquired so and so, and they tend to have all of the uh, all the numbers there. Sometimes you can go look at the 10Ks of the acquirers and if it's material to them, then they will have a they will have a price in there. But you can get you can get a lot of prices of other uh, companies in a particular industry sector. And the more closely those companies that were acquired resemble the company that you're trying to value, then the more relevant those multiples are. And they're usually multiples of revenue and EBITDA that are available from these databases like PitchBook. Uh, mm -hmm. So you do that. You go look at the public companies. You try to find public companies that are, as again, as close to the company you're talking about as possible. As we say, you know, a pure play comparable, something that does they do the exact same thing. They're in, they're in, you know, healthcare uh, receivables management. And the bigger company, you know, ten of them are in the same thing. Then those are. Those are very close comparables, and it's you know it's going to they're going to multiples are going to be very meaningful. Insurance agencies, you know, there there are a lot of data available. Banks, there are a lot of data available in those acquisitions, and they're pretty they're pretty easy to compare. Um, you look at those if it's you're comparing a private company to a group of large public companies, then. You know, it's probably worth 25 or 30 percent or 40 percent less than those public companies because they're much bigger, more well-established. There's liquidity. Uh, you know, their information that is provided is is more accurate and reliable. Uh, so, you know, you put some sort of discount off of the public markets, and you put some sort of discount if you know if needed, maybe not off of the uh, off of the merger and acquisition comparables and. And you're probably pretty close if it's a, you know, a well-established company. Now, sellers always want to say, well, my company is different. My company is better than all of those companies, and I shouldn't, you know, it should be worth, you know, 25% more. And that's, that's a problem because, you know, if they really, really believe that and, you know, it turns out not to be true, you've just put a 1,000 hours into something that's not going to, <laughs> not going to get yeah. done. 
And then is, are those listings of what the public companies have bought, or are they a good indicator of them being potentially the acquirer of a company, or is it more done through a roll-up or things like that? Where do you see more action happening when it's a pure exit? In, in roll-ups that a, a hedge fund or a private equity fund might be bringing together a consolidation of a market or strategic where big companies like the Googles and the Facebooks or a, a big healthcare software company or something like that might be strategically acquiring tech and customers, which do, or is it pretty much even? Well, all of those things are important, and you just have to look at it and use uh... – you know, if if somebody is rolling up the, um, uh, you know, let's think of think of something that uh, people roll up. Let's say so you're you're rolling up the uh, heating and air conditioning business. You know, so pretty much, you know, you're looking for residential service heating and air conditioning businesses. Well, then they're probably going to want to do that in a particular region and any particular location that's got a good company where they don't have presence is going to be. Uh, they're going to be interested in it. And so that's what they've done in the past is a really good indication of what they're, how they're likely to, uh, to see your company. The fact that Google's been acquiring software companies in the, and I don't know what Google acquires, but software companies in the messaging space, you know, well, when they've got one, they've got all they want. So that might not be uh, might not be a good a good place to go with it. When you look at when you look at the transactions out there and you see that two or three companies uh, are doing multiple acquisitions over the last few years in your particular sector, then those are those are real high high value targets. I mean, they're probably I going see. to be interested. Uh, you, you know, there's always a difference between being acquired by a strategic and being acquired by a you know, a financial institution, a fund, uh, that's, uh, there's a big difference there. But uh, the strategic is probably going to be willing to, to pay a little bit more, although the last few years financial institutions have really competed with them well because there's been so much dry powder out there to put work. They've been, been very aggressive. So I don't know if I answered your question. Uh, yeah. I think I, always you're right, but however, it depends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, is there um, okay? Just for the curiosity in the, what is the difference between what you do as an investment banker in the M and A space and a business broker? I uh, or is there not that much? You know, I've yeah. always gotten the, I've always gotten the feeling that a business broker is somebody that does not really have the depth of resources. Um, to, he doesn't have the databases. He doesn't have the analysts. They don't have the VPs. They don't run a big national process. You know, it's a small company. It's a million-dollar EBITDA business. The fees are relatively small. Uh, he's probably the business broker is a smart person that understands that industry and knows who some of the other buyers are in that industry and will take uh, a disclosure package out that's probably relatively simple to a limited number of, of potential acquirers, generally strategic. Um, yeah. Whereas an investment banker is coming in, building a financial model, you know, based by, by customer, by product, by month, by year, you know, for the next 
three, four, or five years writing a prospectus, you know, doing research on valuation, providing a valuation to the customer, and providing information on the buyer universe, both strategic or financial, on a on a national and or international basis, and executing a nationwide process that probably is 2,000 hours before it's finished. Right. Okay. So that's why they get that's why they get bigger fees. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think model is that they don't always close? Right. Right. So in um, in your experience and as companies come in to you, what is the thing that you wish entrepreneurs knew so that they would plan ahead that they seem to take for granted that becomes their, you know, I guess their their obstacle to overcome or somehow kind of go back to the drawing board to fix before they can be in a position to sell the company? I'm glad you asked. Um, there, there definitely is one thing that stands out above all else, and that is the financial records, uh, books and records of the company. Having the information on a accurate and timely basis to be able to respond to potential acquirers and to be able to prepare and present information is is so key and so few companies particularly the entrepreneurs have that it's more the it's you know if you're talking about a company that is a you know hotshot ceo that's building a software company then they probably they get that and they probably have it but when you've got the 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 guy that uh, you know came up the hard way and he's built a he's built or she's built a great company that's that's making ten million dollars. They have always seen the financial uh, records department as an expense, not <laughs> as what they really could be. You know, so the lower yeah. you can pay them and the fewer you can have, the better. So they've got a they got a software system that's primitive. When you talk to the owner and they tell you, well, we've got offices in, you know, we got 25 offices in, you know, 15 states, and you say, well, you know, which products are being sold in which offices and, and which customers and which ones have the greater profitability margins and all that sort of thing, they go, well, we don't keep them. Well, how do you keep it? Well, we look at revenues and we look at margins and we look at cash. So sales went up. Margins are good. Cash is going up. I'm going to play golf. <laughs> but if we want to sell your company to somebody and we want and you expect to get this 10 times EBITDA multiple that, you, you know, these other great companies in your industry are getting, then we're going to have to prove to these buyers how you're making money and why and that that can be continued and grown. And we got to figure this out. Yeah. If you don't have the systems or the people to do that, then we need to just put the brakes on this until you do, um, because it's going to be a it's going to be a train wreck, and you're not you know. So well, I don't want to do that. Okay. Well, look, I can get eight times EBITDA for your company the way it is, but we can get twenty million dollars more if you'll figure this out first. Oh. Right. Well, that yeah. makes a big difference. There's incentive. <laughs> so that's okay. One. So the other. Yeah. One, okay. Go ahead. There's I'm sorry. one more. The other one is, yeah. I don't want to work after the closing, but I don't have anybody to take my place. That doesn't work too well either. Um, you know, you got to have 
you got to have somebody to step into your shoes if you want to retire. They also need to realize that selling your company and retiring is a process, not a moment in time. You know, there's a process of getting ready. There's a process of executing it. There's a process of finding the right partner and one that will continue with the company and, and the way that you would want it to with the employees. And then you gotta you got to stick around for a period of time to make sure it works for everybody. Yeah, that's usually about three years, right? Is that the kind of the going rate of how long a CEO like or founder that. sticks around? Yeah. Um, so now we've this term uh, multiple of EBITDA revenue keep we keep it keeps kind of popping up. So how is that figured out? Does it vary by industry? Where you know manufacturing might be one thing, consumer products one thing, software, biomed, and how and how does that get? Who figures it out? Is it you know, committee of they, or how, how does that work? Well, you, you know, you go into this evaluation process. So, and if you look at, if you look at comparable um, multiples by sector, they vary, you know, very, very widely. Uh, I was just looking at something a minute ago, but let's say if you're looking at a SaaS software company, they might be selling at 20 times EBITDA and five times uh, revenue. If you're looking at a, you know, manufacturing company that has, uh, you know, 12% pre-tax margins and is growing at 10%, then, you know, and is under 5 million of EBITDA, then they might be a, you know, one times revenue or one and a half times and, and, and seven times EBITDA or maybe six times EBITDA or maybe eight. You can't call it too closely, but, you know, that's why you have to go through that auction process to, to make sure you get the best terms oh. and the best price. Okay. All right. Well, it well we've got from I know it does, of, and I get – I, I get reports from ACG or one of the magazines, you know, and they'll talk about or I'll send in on these panels, you know, through the Association for Corporate Growth and these other things, and they'll talk about this. And, I, and it's always been curious to me if it's just kind of really it's set by the market on what that industry is doing itself is really not, you know, a um, if money is cheap. It might be more if there's scarcity of companies. You might have a greater, you know, potential on the multiple. I, it seems like it's it's more kind of like a, a recent history look back on what transactions have happened in that sector. Is that probably a a best way to sort of say how it gets figured out? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's all of those things, Karen. You're 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 right, but different types of revenue, the reliability of the revenue. Let's again go back to one of my favorite industries, the insurance agency business. So the insurance agency has ten million of of revenue commission commission revenue and and those businesses probably make twenty or twenty five percent EBITDA margin. So it's making two million million dollars a year pre tax. But that business has a 95% renewal rate. So that those customers are not going anywhere next year. That business is going to renew. And, you know, if the, if the agents are working hard, then they're probably growing more new business than the business that is 
falling away from them. So those businesses sell for a much higher multiple because the probability of the consistency and stability of that income stream is very high. Money managers that have, you know, a billion dollars of investors capital that they are managing, you know, they, you don't tend to change your money manager very often. The value of your assets may go up or down and his fees may go up and down some. Think about insurance again. You don't cancel your car insurance or your home insurance when you have a recession. You know, so it's kind of recession proof. It's got a 95% renewal rate. It's got good, it's got good margins. Um, you know, so it's a business that is going to be worth more and sell for a higher multiple because an investor can be assured that it's going to continue in its current state of profitability and grow with a much higher degree of certainty than if it is something that is much more volatile and go to the other end of the scale. You've got a home building business. Well, they're just really making the heck out of money when they're making it, but then when interest rates go way up or you have a recession and the music stops, they've got a lot of overhead and the revenue drops down, and now they're losing money. So pay more like five times EBITDA for a home-building company, and you're going to pay more like 12 times for an insurance agency. Okay. Okay. That's great. And everybody Uh, else is somewhere in the you know, most people are somewhere in between software companies that grow and scale, you know, without a lot of capital uh, that are growing at 40 and 50% a year. That's why they're at 20 times EBITDA or five times revenue. It may be at five times revenue and have no EBITDA. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think, you know, as you've touched on, every company or within the industry will have different other assets that get factored into it whether it's their book of business, it's their, you know, continuity of, of, of income because it's a subscription service or an insurance service. If there's assets involved, do they own those assets? Is there debt on those assets? There's all these other factors that go into the play and the health of the financials of the company when you look at their balance sheet and whatnot, right? So that's, those are all probably lesser tweaks of what the multiple might be, but they definitely get put into the mix right oh yeah i mean you know if you've got a lot of valuable assets then you know that is certainly another downside protection for choir or and they take that into consideration so you get can get a value for those assets and then on top of that you get a a multiple in effect it's what's being done is a value for those assets and then a multiple for the operation profit of the business. That's yeah. how car dealers are, are valued, for instance. They got a they got a lot of assets sitting out there that have a you know, a pretty easily well defined value and then they've got a, a business that makes X dollars a year that is likely to continue that and is worth another multiple. Yeah. Well, Ted, you know, we're about out of time. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I want to encourage everybody to go to TJ Bender and Company's website if you're in the business of looking at acquiring companies, funding companies, thinking about selling a piece of your company, growth capital. They're a very well-trusted and well-respected firm. You've heard from Ted, the founder of that, and his website is tjbco.com tjbco.com so 
want to encourage you to to go and check that out and um, put them on your radar screen for when in the future. If you're not there now, in the future when you need this, or if you're invested in a company that you're trying to figure out what some of those exit opportunities or growth opportunities, you know, go and uh, get some uh, strategic advice from Ted. So, anything else you'd like to add to the, before we before we say goodbye? No, Karen. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, delighted to talk with you anytime. Let's uh, let's stay in touch. Thank you for the opportunity. You're very very welcome. All right, folks. I want to encourage you to go to KarenRams.co to get the information about me. And as I conclude the show, uh, onwards and upwards. Stay tuned to, be, to listen to a few of our about our sponsors and more information about the show. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio as a entrepreneur's resource portal providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings. It's a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit KarenRands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.